Welcome to the Modern Hippie Podcast, where we'll be exploring all of my favorite boundary-pushing people and topics surrounding consciousness, psychedelics, mental performance, functional medicine, living in alignment, and so much more. I'm your host, Barrett Perlman, a former pro wakeboarder turned body worker, energy healer, and well, a modern hippie. And I'm so glad you're here. Welcome back to the Modern Hippie Podcast. I am joined today by Adam Gramlidge, who is founder and CEO of Flow State Micro, which is a microdosing educational community, and you also offer support around microdosing psilocybin. Uh, tell me more. Yeah, we got a functional mushroom company. We got a the Flow State stack that we think pairs exceptionally well with microdosing psilocybin. So the idea is. We put together Lion's Mane for the brain, Chaga, the king of mushrooms for overall immunity support, Cordyceps, Maitake, and then we've found and heard from uh, clients and people in the underground, my own personal use, that when you stack that with your sweet spot of psilocybin, it's a really great stack, you know, similar to the Stamet stack. So right now, we've got the legal functional mushrooms. We're positioning ourselves to, of course, you know, get the proper licenses one day to, to do the microdoses as well. But right now it's about uh, education and educating Mm -hmm. people and and kind of breaking down the myths and and teaching people that microdosing is something that our ancestors have done for tens of thousands of years. And um, hopefully we can get some more double blind research going on it and get this uh, replacing antidepressants. Mm, Yes, absolutely. I mean, I even consulted with two clients today about replacing their antidepressants and what they could be doing with uh, psilocybin or other mushrooms and what drew you to mushrooms? My own deep depression. I like to say that I had an addiction to misery for 39 years. I was a miserable victim and I worked in the cannabis space for 14 years and I really felt that cannabis was like <clears throat> the answer to depression and I, I felt strongly in the plant. But after many years of my own personal use, I also found it was very seductive and can be addictive and it was more like a band-aid over my wound uh, just kind of numbing me out than really helping me and uh, luckily I began to see the Johns Hopkins studies with large dose and depression and I began to treat myself with a combination of maybe a large dose every three or four months and then I began microdosing and what I saw immediately on that first day of microdosing was that it interrupted, in my opinion, my default mode network or that network of my brain that's always ruminating with constant depression and uh, gave me a break for a minute and allowed me to be more positive, have more energy, feel better, and maybe look at this trauma and depression in a whole new way, which eventually over time allowed me to actually do some real healing, which I hadn't done for you know, close to 40 years. So I got out of cannabis and pivoted into mushrooms because I really see this as, you know, this is the past. This is the original medicine. You know, plants and animals are derived from mushrooms. Humans are more like mushrooms than plants are. So this is not surprising that these are helping people. Um, And so I began to help myself. And then the people in my life began to see a, a drastic change. And they came to me and Lots of people found that they could, you know, treat different conditions from substance abuse, whether it was alcohol or nicotine or, or pharmaceuticals. And uh, 
just began to educate people. And, and from there, you know, the business and everything formed and work with a lot of different people, including professional athletes right now, a lot of guys in the NHL, mm -hmm. hockey players who are, you know, not only seeing a benefit on the ice, but also in, in their mental health and potentially with all of the many concussions they've, they've had over the years. Um, you know, in pro sports, specifically hockey is, is a big drinking sport. You know, it's like these guys go out and a lot of them drink a ton of beer. And a lot of the people I worked with when I first started working with them, they're drinking Folgers coffee before the game and, you know, dehydrating mm. themselves. But now there's a lot of people in the sport that are microdosing and finding that it is really helping them with their performance. A lot of time, get out of their head and get into that flow state. You know, a lot of time in pro sports, it's about momentum, right? Sometimes you're on top of the world and sometimes you're in a slump. Well, a lot of these people getting into the slump and these athletes, it's a mental thing, right? If they don't have the mental thing going, they're off physically. So a lot of people have found it helps them maybe potentially come out of their slump. Um, you know, there's pro snowboarders using it. There's there's pro surfers microdosing. So yeah, it's a, it's a really promising space. And the more research and books and, and, and work I do to try and find our past of microdosing, it's all over the place. You know, this isn't new. Uh, as, as the Ancestors Project in Baltimore, Maryland likes to say, the ancestors did the research. You know, I mm -hmm. understand that there are people that need to see the science of microdosing. I get that. And there are people right now that are really struggling and they can't wait five years for the DEA or the FDA to prove this and they need education. They're gonna go out and do it themselves, so they might as well get some harm reduction and some safety and, and learn how to do it effectively. But microdosing is not new. This has been going on, you know, essentially on every continent across the world throughout time. Yeah, oh, man, you just touched on so much and I have so many follow-up questions for you. <laughs> Were you an athlete as well? I went to college in Utah. I went to film school in Utah and I took my classes at night so I could ride every day at Snowbird Mountain. So oh, yeah, I, yeah, I, you know, I, I love being uh, outside. I still play soccer competitively, played soccer throughout high school. So yeah, I think of myself as an athlete and, you know, part of what helped me get out of my depression was the mushrooms were a motivator and they reminded me that I was an athlete. And that my joy mm. came from being in shape and moving my body and got me in touch with our hunter gatherer roots and how, you know, we were fit people who had to move every day and not sit in a desk chair in front of art artificial lights for hours. So yeah, I was an athlete and what a large dose of psilocybin helped me connect one time was that my joy is connected to me being an athlete and me moving mm. my body and me working out. And so with microdosing, started the gym multiple days a week, fitness, all of that. And it's, yeah, it, it all goes together. You know, if you're sitting around all day and you think microdosing is going to make you happy, it's not like it's part and parcel of many things. You have to look at your diet. You have to look at what you're ingesting through the television and the cell phone. And uh, there's, there's so many different things. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was a professional wakeboarder. So hence why I was kind of asking that one. And I also still work with a lot of people, especially BMX riders and skateboarders who've hit their heads a lot. Um, so I'm very interested in the work that you're doing with athletes and the, you know, 
I think you make a great point. So many people, my mom in particular, wants to see all the research. Uh, she's very much like it has to be legalized. And until then, you know, but she's starting to be like, I watched a TED talk and maybe you're onto something. And I'm like, I know, I know I'm onto something. <laughs> but um, you're right. Like people don't have time, especially when they've suffered a lot of traumatic brain injuries or maybe they're a prime candidate for having CTE and they're starting to experience the symptoms already. Like there's not that time to wait 10 years for the Food and Drug Administration to say, yeah, this stuff's cool. Um, and so what has been your experience with getting athletes on like microdosing programs who were experiencing brain injury problems and concussions? And um, My experience is that uh, I start with one athlete on the team or one individual and they see such benefits that they introduce me to the next individual. And so it's kind of, it, it's all word of mouth, but they just see a real benefit. You know, there's not a lot of education. There is more these days. I shouldn't say that teams are spending more time on diet and trainers and everything, but athletes are still going out and drinking tons of alcohol and they're being given tons of pain pills. Like no yeah. one wants to talk about the pain medication that the athletes given who's gotten a continuous concussion. And the reality is there's not a lot of treatments for a brain injured individual once they've had that major brain trauma. You know, we don't have a lot right now. And I think that there is potential for a combination of that large dose, um, you know, a few times combined with the, you know, what's called a maintenance dose by uh, Wisana, which is a company in the space of, of uh, psilocybin and pharmaceuticals. Their idea is they're looking to try and treat brain injury and trauma um, with the combination of a large dose of psilocybin and then maintenance doses uh, over a period of time, microdoses. What's interesting mm. is that company was started by um, a former professional NHL hockey player who was a fighter who had a lot of brain injury. And he speaks in the first person about how much the combination of large doses and small doses has helped him. And he was suicidal. You know, he was moments yeah. away from taking his life when another friend flew him out to Colorado and guided him through a large dose and it changed everything. And now this, this individual is trying to change the world and, and, you know, figure out what they can do. So I have not suffered from major brain injury, so I can't speak to it personally, but what I can speak to is tons of athletes and clients who have seen huge benefits and continue to then introduce me to another brain injured athlete, because the, the honest truth is NFL, NHL, a lot of these leagues, even extreme sports, the people that own the league and the owners, they don't care about your brain or what happens to you when you retire. You know, you're just nope. a dollar sign to them and the advertisers. And so um, it's time that all these leagues look into how they can take care of their athletes, not only while they're in their league, but, um, you know, when they retire as well. We know they make enough money. And for all the people out there that, you know, like your mother, who really believe in science, I'm really surprised that this isn't being talking about more in the media, but there was a report that came out a few weeks ago that antidepressants essentially don't work and that mm. they did a longitudinal study. They did a longitudinal study on antidepressants where they tested people with extreme depression who didn't get antidepressants for two years. And then they tested people with extreme depression who did get, and they had this, they were in the same place after two years. Mm. So all these people are getting antidepressants and, it's not really necessarily making them better than people who are not. And they're right. getting all of these side effects. So 
it's about time we look at these non-toxic, non-habit forming natural substances, you know, and what we really need to do first is we need to decriminalize it all first and not mm-hmm. make the same mistake we made with cannabis, which is legalize it for the rich and, and the few and knock out all the small legacy farmers that have been doing it for 30, 40 years. Um, mm. So there's so many things that we have to do differently than, than we did in cannabis for sure. Do you see us learning from those mistakes now? Like I've been following a lot of the conversation, especially through like um, the psychedelics today that they're talking about what's going on in Oregon and how that legalization is going to look in January. From what you've been hearing, does it sound like we're we're preparing to walk a better path than we did with cannabis? I sure hope we do. You know, I'd like to stay <laughs> as positive as possible and try and, you know, speak out the best possible scenario. And I'd like to say big money is already here, has already been here. Mm -hmm. Lots of people from cannabis who lost money are shifting into psychedelics. And there's as many people with bad intentions as there are with good intentions here. So we Mm -hmm. need to be really, really careful with how we do this. We don't necessarily need to rush it out. We need to really think how we're going to do this and how we don't make the same mistakes. The first thing we could do is just work on decriminalizing it. Right. And if we stopped arresting people for small time possession and if we gave people the opportunity to gather and grow it and do their own ceremonies, those people that cannot afford to pay for the three thousand dollar MDMA treatment or the twenty five hundred dollar mushroom retreat in Topanga Canyon can do (laughs) it on their own and they cannot worry about being arrested in the meantime. So it's mm-hmm. really about decriminalizing first before we talk about legalizing at all. Mm. Yeah, that's a very important part of having that access. I, that's a lot of people I run into as well, where I'm like, well, you can come to me for ceremony or I can set you up with a package and you can kind of do it yourself at home and we can talk before, we can talk after and see what that's going to end up looking like. Um, yeah, what a what a fun time to be in psychedelics. And it's also mind-blowing to me that there's so many people with ill intentions in this space because I just want to be like, have you ever even taken mushrooms? <laughs> like, did you not have your heart open? Did you not find um, a connection to source, a connection to energy that you could now somehow find yourself in the world showing up with, with ill intentions around this? It's like mind-boggling to me. Um, but I, you know, was one of those people where mushrooms saved my life. And I was suicidal. And at a time I was getting ready to commit suicide, I was like, I got, I got these mushrooms. I guess I'll just eat them and see if anything changes. And if not, goodbye world. And if so, sweet. And uh, I had my spiritual awakening that night and everything changed. And so I'm so passionate about sharing that message and sharing, sharing the mycelium. And once you get tapped in, um, you had mentioned, you know, we have more in common with mushrooms than we do with plants. And I'm seeing that all over the place. Like, so I am just coming off of um, a four nights of ayahuasca in the Amazon. And towards the end, the last ceremony, that trip, um, the mycelium really kind of showed me my place in all of it and sharing the message. And um, it's been fascinating because as I came back to cell phone reception, many of the people who came up that night on my radar had already reached out to me by the time I turned my phone on. 
and now that I'm back at home, my, my group here is all rising and I'm, I'm operating from so much more play and blowing with the wind and take going wherever the mycelium takes me. And it's just taking me some fucking beautiful places, really beautiful places. And that is such a powerful message for us to, to share and to bring out into the world. And so do you think um, it's super important for people to have that macro dose experience as well as the micro dose experience? Or are you experiencing that people have great success just on a micro dosing program? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that micro dosing is more accessible to the entire population than macro dosing and large doses. Uh, you know, for example, one of my favorite clients in microdosing is my own mother. She's 73 mm. years old. She was an emergency room nurse. And I'm not sure that she is into a large dose experience. You know, that's a little bit too scary for her. You know, mm. she lived through the 60s, but she, you know, wasn't part of the, the hippie revolution. So that's not as accessible to someone like my mother. But microdosing you know, in the first day, her report was that it helped to remove her crippling anxiety. You know, she mm. was an emergency room nurse for 30 years, and I'm sure has tons of trauma from what she saw in an emergency room. So I saw with my own mother that microdosing is more accessible. Now, it's important to note for anyone that's new that a large dose and a microdose is very, very different, right? Yeah. On a microdose, you're not going to, you know, have your ego dissolve and go to other realms, maybe talk to your ancestors, maybe have the insight into that really, really deep trauma you haven't felt or thought about in years. That's, that's large dose, right? Small dose microdosing is, is very different. I like to think of it more as a non-toxic, non-habit forming antidepressant that already has days off built into the protocol, right? It's not something that mm -hmm. anyone's taking seven days a week which is different from an antidepressant or, or a pharmaceutical. So real that's, quick, that's so just to interject there real quick though. Are you a, more of a believer in two days on two days off or five days on two days off? Well, that's just it. There's no one protocol for every, for anyone, just like there's no one dosage for anyone, you know, maybe 90 milligrams of psilocybin is my microdose, maybe 150 milligrams is your, your microdose. We don't know mm -hmm. that until you experiment and you figure that out. Now, when it comes to protocols, you know, there's three main protocols. There's the Fatiman protocol for microdosing. That's probably the most popular. That's one day on, two days off. Then there's the Paul Stamets protocol, which is five days on, two days off, or four days on, three days off. And then there's the Microdosing Institute protocol in Holland, which is day on, day off. Mm. And lastly, there is the intuitive protocol which seems to be the protocol that most people eventually fall into, which is they follow their own tuition and they base their dosing days on their schedule. Now, again, the important thing is you don't want to microdose seven days a week. A tolerance will build. It will become ineffective. The days off can be as good as the days on, right? There's a, there's a 48 hour effect of psychedelics in large and small doses. We call it the afterglow. So, Sometimes that day off and even that second day off in the Fatiman protocol can be incredible, right? Mm. And we're not used to like having incredible days under days off. So that's as far <laughs> as medication goes. So sure. that is what I think is really powerful about is about microdoses. It sets you up over time to take it less and less. And then maybe over six, seven, eight months or however long, you're really not microdosing. Maybe once a month, maybe 
maybe never again. You know, it's different for everyone. So everybody has a different protocol. And where do you start people? Um, you know, as you mentioned, the, there's just a wide variety. I had someone come to me the other day and say he took, he ended up taking 1.4 grams and he felt dizzy. And I was like, oh no, who advised you to do that? Like, that's not a microgram dose. And he's like, well, they're 0.7 pills, um, which would be about uh, seven milligrams. 700, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think I... I think the biggest mistake in microdosing today is that a lot of people are taking too large of a dose. Mm. Um, 700 milligrams is an insane dose. Like that is not a microdose, right? The microdose range used to be about 0.1 to 0.4. So 100 milligrams to 400 milligrams. What I've seen in the last few years and, and what Dr. Fadiman has done is they've lowered the scale. You know, I've worked with people grown men that are 200 pounds, six foot two and 50 milligrams is all they need. Right. Mm -hmm. So your tolerance is not set on your weight or your body size, or if you're a man or a woman, some women need more, some men need less. So the real range of a microdose, in my opinion, from working with hundreds of people is probably 50 milligrams to 250 milligrams. I know for me, when I get into 200 milligrams, it begins to be noticeable and perceptual. I definitely took something. And when I get into 300 milligrams, I'm high. There are classic mm. psychedelic effects. You know, I'm feeling like maybe I'm starting to come on. Maybe I'm sensitive, but microdosing should have no classic psychedelic effects, right? You, you yeah. should be able to do everything in your day. You really should, should notice that you've taken much of anything, right? Exactly. And, and that's the whole point of it. So the biggest mistake people make is they keep upping their dose till they feel something. And <laughs> a lot of people end up taking too strong of a dose. 300 milligrams, in my opinion, is too high. 400, 500, 600, 700. That's a, that's a high dose, right? Yeah. So yeah. that's the biggest mistake people make is they take too big of a dose and then it's really uncomfortable their anxiety rises, they, they're nervous, you know, heightened anxiety mm -hmm. is probably the number one, um, you know, side effect for people is they take too much and they're no longer in the microdose range and they're truly in the, the mini dose range. Um, right. So it's, it's really about teaching people that I can tell you a hundred milligrams works, but you got to try it. You got to have your journal. You got to say, okay, Monday, I tried a hundred milligrams, didn't notice anything. Tuesday, I tried 125 milligrams, heightened sense of emotions and feelings. Okay, maybe I go back down to 100 and try that for a week or a month. And we really like to suggest that once people find their sweet spot, that they commit to a full month. That microdosing is really subtle. It's small changes. It's not like the mm -hmm. large dose, right? You asked earlier, do I think everybody needs a large dose? I think anyone that feels called and is safe mentally doesn't have anything like schizophrenia in the family or, or anything that could right. be triggered by the substance and they're supported by, you know, a, a guide. I think everybody should have that large dose experience in a safe set and setting and get connected to the mushrooms on that level. Absolutely. And when I did, which reminded me of, you mentioned that mushrooms saved your life. The mushroom said to me at one point, I was like, I'm a depressed 39 year old man. I, I don't even know what makes me happy. And they're like, what made you happy as a kid? And I was like, <laughs> oh, fuck. Riding a bike, playing outside, being athletic. And they just kind of laughed at me and they're like, do that. 
go find your joy. And I think, you know, you mentioned like you were on the verge of suicide. You took a large dose and it changed everything in the right set and setting. The large dose can do something that the microdose cannot do. And let's be really clear about that. Right. Okay. They're two totally different things. Absolutely. And uh, I love that the mushrooms told you that to get back to what you did as a child. Um, I was explaining to one of my friends today, this reinstilled sense of play that's overcome me since this last week with ayahuasca. And she's like, can you just describe play? Like, are you sexually touching everybody around you? And I'm like, no, (laughs) no. I was like, I'm more like a lion cub. Like think of how baby animals play. Like that's what I'm showing up and doing with everyone around me. And um, it's given me, I, I normally have not been very into children. And now I feel like this deep desire to like play with children. And it's like, I want to do all those things. I want to go ride my bike. I want to go sit outside. I surf every day. So I'm, I'm out in the water and like, I want to swim around and I want to see the dolphins who have not come to greet me yet since I've been home. And um, I think all those things are just, they're so beautiful and re-tapping back into nature, re-tapping back into our essence, getting out of that work mode all the time because that's not what life was designed for it's just what we've pushed on top of it and especially western society especially america it's like jesus let's let's work and then figure out how to relax and play later and a lot of the rest of the world really likes to play and and they plan their work around it like it's not um something they sacrifice and so yeah, we, we, we stopped playing and, you know, I'm about to turn 44. I think a lot of men my age give up after 30 or whatever, and just stop thinking that they can be in shape and stop thinking that they mm. can be healthy. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think the quickest way to ending the, me- ending the mental health crisis isn't necessarily having everybody microdose or eat large doses of mushrooms. <laughs> it's having everybody get off their ass stop eating horrible food and get outside and connect with nature and move their body. If you Mm -hmm. don't move your body, you can't be happy. It's as simple as that. And that was something Mm -hmm. that mushrooms really showed me is it's like, you got to move your body. You got to, you got to be fit. And so uh, again, you know, these mushrooms for a lot of people, whether it's small or large doses, it connects you again to nature, probably Mm -hmm. for the first time for a lot of people since they were a child. You know, for me, it was like, I saw myself climbing trees as a kid and how much fun we have. And it's like, we get into being adults and we get locked into debt slavery and college loans and bills and we stop playing, right? Mm -hmm. And so psychedelics for adults like me, dads like me, parents like me, it reconnects them to that childlike wonder again. And you know, Mm -hmm. there's a growing movement of moms and dads that are microdosing and it's life-changing you know, and it's like people, there are some people that are like, mom's eating 50 milligrams of mushrooms is the most dangerous thing I've ever heard. And I'm like, uh, I think the wine club that happens 90% of this country is the most dangerous thing for our children and our future is the fact that this country and this world supports alcohol. Alcohol is the biggest disease on this planet. It destroys so many lives. It's allowed at all of our events, all of our celebrations, mm-hmm. all of our parties. You know, mm-hmm. I was at a concert last night. I don't drink. And I was on what we will call a museum or a concert dose, maybe around mm. 250, 300 milligrams, feeling really good. And I had this moment of watching this very drunk individual just 
stumbling up and then they just spilled the beer everywhere. And I just had this moment where the mushrooms were like, that's how they want you. That's, that's how they want you. They all want you drunk, overweight, bad judgment, saying mm-hmm. stupid shit, abusing people, being violent. You know, it, it's alcohol. They used to call it spirits. It distills your spirit. It, it steals your <sighs> essence. So one of the biggest things analogy. when I'm, one of the biggest things when I'm working with clients, when that first talk and I'm finding out what their medications are, what they're on is it's like, do you drink alcohol? Okay, well, we're going to stop that. Mm. And it's amazing. And so when people come at me about moms that are going to take 50 milligrams of mushroom and fall in love with their children again and, and play with them instead of freak out at Timmy because he spilled his milk. I'm like, what about alcohol? Like how many mm-hmm. DUIs and deaths are there a year? How many domestic violence incidents are there a year? Yet Miller Lite and Budweiser get to, you know, sponsor all these events. And the other thing yeah. that's wrong with this country is we're allowed to advertise pharmaceuticals on the television. We're one of only two nations in the entire world. And it's like, mm-hmm. anytime I'm near a TV, three out of the five commercials are a pharmaceutical, which the last 20 seconds are all the side effects, right? <laughs> and they're horrible. They're always horrible. And they're horrible. And the last <laughs> one is like, you might die from this pill, but it might give you help from this condition. And it's like, we have to redo our whole medical system. We really have to. And I've been attacked recently in this space because I'm not a medical doctor and these haven't mm. gone through clinical trials. But again, you know, medical science, clinical trials, that's the last 100, 150, 200 years of medicine. You right. know, what about Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese medicine that's thousands of years old that's used mushrooms? You know, what about, uh, you know, all these different modern medicine is new and modern medicine is flawed. And the more you look yeah. into it, you see that it's corporations are sponsoring the studies so that, you know, so Mm -hmm. I don't want to get too deep into it, but I really feel like we need to get back to natural plant and fungi medicines. Absolutely. And I am the daughter of a doctor and a nurse of traditional medicine. And so I'm sure you can imagine the conversations I'm having in my home (laughs) around it. Um, But, you know, my belief system has really shifted to Western medicine is great if you're about to die and you need someone to go in and sew you up or remove something or like stitch you and save your life. Great. The rest of it, I mean, you want to discount thousands of years of Ayurvedic medicine. One time I I cured myself of strep throat through Ayurveda and my mom, who was an operating room nurse, was like, there's just absolutely no way you could have done that. There's no way. There's no way to cure strep without antibiotics and steroids. And I was like... I looked in my throat. I've had strep off and on throughout my life so many times. I saw it. I went into the doctor, described to him. He looked in my throat. He's like, well, it's gone. What you just described, strep, you know? And so my mom was like, I just need you to take a strep test just to make sure because you could die otherwise. And I took one and sure enough, it was gone. Right. So, um, and then I just spent this time. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You finish. Sorry. And I just spent this time in the Amazon doing ayahuasca and we've got people in our ceremonies being cured of ailments, inexplicable, incurable things by the doctors they had been going to. And a guy straight up told his doctor like, well, I'm going to the Amazon and I'm going to do ayahuasca and I'm going to come back and let's retest me and see how everything goes. So I look forward to hearing about his test results, but the changes he was having in, in the five days that we were there was already profound enough. And 
<sighs> yeah, I mean, let's let's be real. All you have to do is check out Dope Dope Sick on Hulu, and if you haven't seen Dope Sick on Hulu, mm. check it out. But it's the true story about the uh, the Sackler family, and they're the family that started OxyContin, and they faked oh, okay. all kinds of studies, and they lied to doctors, and they essentially created the opiate epidemic um, in our country that we're suffering from now. They made billions of dollars. When finally the, 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 this is the government found out they faked all their studies, they went bankrupt. They didn't lose any of their money. They got to keep their billions. And they took you know, thousands and thousands of life, lives across the country and created this opiate epidemic. So mm-hmm. there is so much money in American medicine. And doctors, they don't learn anything about nutrition or traditional medicine in medical school. They might get one four-hour class, I've heard, or something. Doctors mm-hmm. are taught by the pharmaceutical companies to give pills most of the time, especially when it comes to depression and mental health. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying all doctors, I'm sure there's tons of good doctors out here, but a lot of people that come to me and are overprescribed and polydrugged, they go to their doctor and they say, I don't feel better. And rather than the doctors you know, try to get to the root of what's going on, they say, try this new drug or try 10 more milligrams of this drug. And it's like, we need to get back to modern yeah. medicine treating the root of the problem right? Mm -hmm. And not just throwing pills at something. Absolutely. And so your company also deals in non-psilocybin mushrooms. Um, What are those products and how did you create them? So it's essentially, we call it the flow state stack, but it's the stack of lion's mane, chaga, cordyceps, and maitake. Um, This was actually a blend that came to me within a large dose mushroom journey. Uh, so sort of guided to it, but I find that all four of those mushrooms do something unique specifically for, uh, the, the athletic performance. I like to call it a performance blend, but the lion's mane, you know, in rat studies has shown to create neurogenesis and improve neuroplasticity. Um, that's the growth of new, uh, brain center or brain neurons and pathways in the brain. Uh, Chaga again has over 215 phytonutrients. It's referred to as the king of mushrooms. That's more phytonutrients than acai berries, goji berries. So chaga is a superfood in and of itself. So to stack that with lion's mane for the brain, chaga for the whole system. Then you add cordyceps. I think cordyceps is the mushroom that I am the most excited about. I think cordyceps is going to just be huge around the world, uh, but but specifically, excuse me, within this athletic and performance community, you know, it's said to increase oxygen in the lungs. It's said to give a stimulant-like effect throughout the day where there's no crash of coffee. There are stories mm. of a Chinese Olympic team that shaved like three or four minutes off the world record time uh, by using four grams of cordyceps a day. So cordyceps is a mushroom that lots of athletes have been using quietly and seen a benefit from. So think of cordyceps as like uh, coffee throughout the day where there's no crash, right? So mm. cordyceps is a mushroom. And then maitake is, you know, a stress reliever, as is cordyceps, um, as is chaga, as well as immunity support. So, you know, you're getting immunity support, you're getting brain support. Um, And I just think that, you know, if you had to take four mushrooms, those are the, those are maybe the most important ones for performance. And would you say that's something you should take right out of bed in the morning, or can you take it in the afternoon? Yeah, that's thinking of like a a natural vitamin, you know, so that's something I would start my day with, because even with the lion's mane 
chaga, cordyceps, there can be a, a feeling of an energy boost. So for me, it's something I, I wake up and start my day with, and then I go and train. And it's something that I see really enhances training, helps with my running as well, all of that good stuff. Mm, I love it. And something you were telling me about before we uh, hit record on this interview is sort of the history of psychedelics and how animals discovered that for us. Can you give me some examples of how the animal kingdom were demonstrating to us that this shit is real, that this is what's happening in these different plants? Yeah, I mean, I think it was the mushrooms that have really helped me to just become fascinated with human evolution and all the things that happened tens of thousands of years ago, long before organized religion and society. And it's just fascinating. The more I look into it, the more that I see that there's essentially ancient use of, you know, psychedelics throughout this planet on, on almost every continent. What I really wanted to find out is, could I find references to ancient microdosing throughout the world? And what's amazing is I've found all kinds, you know, so the, the aboriginals in Australia, they're said to have left Africa 50 to 70,000 years ago, right? So that's considered the oldest population still on the planet. And mm -hmm. I found that they microdose uh, something called paturi, which is essentially the datura plant, you know, which some people call the dev devil's weed. Datura is very, <laughs> very, very dangerous in large doses. It's not mm -hmm. for people to take, but clearly I found multiple documented um, reports even up to 200, 300 years ago that they used this to suppress hunger, to give them extra stimulant-like effect and stamina, and to improve their hunting. Now, what's fascinating about that is Terence McKenna was the first to uh, hypothesize about the stoned ape hypothesis, right? And that whole mm -hmm. idea fascinates me. I like the idea. I'm biased. But I think there's a direct relation between the aboriginals and, you know, the potential stoned ape hypothesis in Africa. What's interesting, though, in my research is there is an extended history of animals introducing us to psychedelic plants, roots, and fungi. And I believe, you know, not only were we tracking cattle in the Fertile Nile Valley and finding mushrooms in their scat and learning about it that way, I think we were also watching animals to learn which plants to eat and which plants to not. And there's a fascinating book out there called Intoxication by Ronald K. Siegel. I recommend checking that out to just about anyone. But, you know, I, I learned that there's Aboriginal history. I learned that uh, the Tacano Indians of the Amazon saw jaguars eating Bonasterius capi vine and that they began to microdose uh, Bonasterius capi because they believed it gave them jaguar eyes. They believed it dilates their pupils and allows them to see better at night. And what's mm. amazing is whether it's Australia, the potential for the stoned ape theory, or you know Mexico and the Amazon, all of these indigenous tribes have used some sort of psychedelic plant in small doses uh, for stimulant-like effects and to suppress appetite and to make them better hunters. It's pretty impressive. And that's a huge testament to what these can do for athletic performance now in humans. And oh, it's just profound stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And McKenna's Stone Day of Hypothesis was essentially 
that the small doses improved visual acuity, which is the same idea that the Tucano Indians have in the Amazon of jaguar eyes, right? We mm -hmm. all know that we, when we take large doses of psychedelics, our pupils dilate. So um, maybe there is some truth to that. But yeah, it's the question of whether large doses and small doses of psilocybin helped us to evolve, you know? Some people believe it led to language, music, culture, art, you know? Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is if you research like the first piece of art we've ever found in history, it's like 77,000 years old and it's a piece of red ochre rock and it has these psychedelic zigzag lines carved into it. And a lot of anthropologists mm -hmm. hypothesize that those were the visions that early man were seeing. And so a lot of our first art is rock art. It's on walls, right? And we, yeah. have, a cave, we have a cave painting in Algiers from 9,000, 10,000 years ago of a beheaded mushroom shaman. And mm -hmm. there are a lot of people that believe this was the original first religion. Thousands of years before Christianity or, or any of these other organized religions was a, a feminine-led mushroom cult that thrived mm -hmm. in, the, in the fertile Nile Valley. And, you know, even the U.S. Forest Service has said that this cave painting is the oldest known documented use of psilocybin mushroom use um, amongst humans in the world. So psilocybin mushroom use outdates Christianity by like six or seven thousand years. Isn't that insane? I mean, I know, too, when when they came uh, as trying to be the saviors of Christ and um, going around the world instigating and, and pushing the religion upon people, they they didn't like that other people were having their own experiences with God. I mean, you can take these mushrooms and you can have your own experience and relationship with source, as I call it, or the universe or God. And um, that was like a huge no-no for organized religion. They were like, you have to come to us. We need to be in control. And they smashed things. They destroyed remnants. And But it was all yeah. originally psychedelics. And there's, you know, an interesting history in the Spanish colonization of, of the Aztec lands is, uh, you know, they were murdering and making the use of plant hallucinogens and fungi uh, illegal for the local people. And at the same time, I found a report that Cortez was said to microdose his troops with peyote to help them hike long distances in their heavy steel armor. You know, mm. one of the one of the reasons that the Spanish were able to decimate the Aztecs so quickly was because they had steel armor, right? And so right. they had steel armor, they had cannons, they had rifles, gunpowder, all kinds of stuff. So um, it, it's interesting. But no, even Cortez was using peyote and microdoses with his troops to give them that extra bit of stimulant, uh, stimulant extra energy. And what's mm -hmm. fascinating is, you know, in northern Mexico. Uh, or in, there's two different tribes that use peyote and they use it differently. There's the Weechal tribe that uses large doses of peyote as a sacrament and hardly ever uses small doses. The only time I've found that they use small doses is on their annual peyote hunt. So supposedly the most sacred day of the year is the one day they all go out and hunt peyote. The reports I've found, the first person to find the peyote shares it with everybody Everybody mm. microdoses the peyote, and then they spend the next few hours finding their annual um, stash for the years or supply for the years. And then after that, to celebrate, they have a large dose journey together. Now, the Raramari Indians uh, also worship peyote, 
in both of these languages, the word for peyote and deer are the same. And there's a connection to whether or not the deer introduced peyote to the people. In the folklore, the story is within every step the deer took, a, a peyote button grew. So you can see that direct relation there to, to animals and, and peyote. But the Raramari Indians, as opposed to the Weechal, they really only microdose peyote. And they microdose peyote to long, run long distances. They run 100 to 200 miles at a time. And they use it uh, to enhance their hunting. They're what's called persistence, persistence hunters, which means they'll run down birds and animals until the bird can't take off and fly anymore and just falls over dead exhausted. Or oh they're, they're also still hunting with bow and arrows today. So they're unchanged from thousands of years ago. They were not changed by, they were one of only a few tribes that were not changed by the Spanish colonization. They haven't been un, run over by loggers and miners. They're an amazing, mm. amazing community. And they believe strongly in the microdosing of, of peyote. And uh, it's, it's amazing. Again, there's all kinds of documented reports for many years about these, these individuals just being able to run insane distances in these sandals that essentially tie with lace around their ankle. And maybe the bottom is like half an inch thick. And, you know, I've talked to a professional ultra mar marathon runner who said he went down there and he couldn't keep up. No way. You know, and he's wearing he's wearing the best shoes on the planet, and these guys are out running them. Granted, they know the terrain and everything, but yeah. And the Raramari, they see running as as sacred. You know, it's it's sacred to them, and it's how they get from village to village. It's how they communicate. It's how they pass messages. So mm. you know, wherever you go, you can see an ancient lineage in a lot of these indigenous indigenous societies of using small doses of whether it's peyote or ayahuasca vine or paturi over in Australia um, to enhance mm. their hunting, hunting, suppress their appetite and um, give them stimulant-like effects. Oh, so fascinating. And I also honor how in touch they are with the land currently to be able to do that still, you know, to, to know that when you take off running, like it's, I don't want to say psychedelics give you a false sense of security because I don't think it's false at all, but it gives you, um, a very in touchness with all of the energy around you. So it's sort of like all of a sudden there's no need to be afraid of the things that go bump in the night because everything is kind of working for you. Like I was walking barefoot through the Amazon rainforest a couple of times on my trip and, and at night and like no one else was barefoot the whole time at my retreat except for me, which I think they did themselves a major disservice by that. But we would go walking and it was like, my friend was like, aren't you just a little nervous about like the centipedes and the creepy crawlies. And I was like, no, because we're in the medicine. They know it. like, I'm not the one that they, they should be after. And so I, I look at these other tribes like that as they're so in touch that to them, they just are essentially like the wind and they run from village to village to pass that message, or they are part of the food chain. And so when they track down this animal that they've, they've shot, um, it's just a part of the pattern and their flow and, being in touch with their region. And, and they're grateful for the animals. And what I've found mm -hmm. in my research is that, you know, the first thing early man, we're talking Paleolithic 100,000 years ago, first thing we worshiped were the animals that we hunted and mm -hmm. the animals that we survived off of. And I heard Joseph Campbell telling a story that early man, when they would make a kill, they would pour the blood back into the earth 
and believe in the following year that another animal would would be born out of the earth. So, um, you know, they're more connected to animals. And early on, when we were converting into Homo sapiens, we were hunted by a lot of these animals, right? We were the hunted. Mm -hmm. So we watched them. We watched how they hunted. We watched how they preyed on people. And we watched what plants they ate and what plants they died when they ate from and what plants that they ran around stimulated from, you know, um, two of the biggest stimulants on the planet are cocaine and coffee. And Mm. both of them are said to be introduced by uh, animals. And the story with goats, yeah, the story with goats is fascinating. In 8900, there was an Abyssinian herder and he saw his older goats eating this red berry and then like kind of sprinting and being just as fast as the younger goats. So he tried the berry, it had stimulating effects, and that was coffee. And then if you go into Andean society, they worship a sacred llama, and they worship the mm. sacred llama for bringing them coca and the coca leaf, you know, and the chewing of the coca leaf. We're not talking about the snorting of cocaine, totally different than tradition. <laughs> the different. traditional The traditional use is the chewing of the coca leaf, and that's said to be handed down from the llama to the Andean society. How did that happen? The llamas came down naturally from higher elevation. They began to eat the coca leaf, get stimulated, run around, and the herders saw it and they tried it itself. So I think stone ape hypothesis hypothesis is something that's more than likely never going to be able to be proven unless we find some ancient being with, you know, psilocybin in their teeth or something like that. But what we've been able to prove, at least through oral folklore through hundreds and thousands of years, is that animals have introduced man to a lot of different psychedelic plants and stimulants. Yeah, absolutely. And I can attest to those coca leaves, having just been in the Andes in Peru. And um, we went on this crazy hike, which might not have been so crazy if it wasn't at 12,000 feet altitude. And we went to go see this viewpoint of the condors. And since I brought condor feathers home with me, I wanted to bond with their spirit and person before I use them for healing. And it was rough. Like everything was up or down on our path. There was no flat. And, um, you know, we're all carrying coca leaves. And so you just pop some in. And, and it was almost to the point where you'd be like, gosh, is it just that I have the distraction away from the fact that I feel like I'm, I'm suffering this whole walk? Um, but you really would pop them in and suck on them and chew on them and be like, Oh, I I was suffering and now I'm okay. And that's just such a huge part of their culture. Like all the whole time throughout my tour um, of Peru, they would be like, you want coca leaves? You want coca leaves? Do you want coca leaves? How about coca leaves? Yeah. I mean, I think that that is, you know, microdosing coca. And for a lot of people, it is helping with the altitude sickness. I know when I go Mm. to Colorado, the altitude hits me hard. Um, Mm -hmm. so I can only imagine what the altitude would be like in those, in those areas. I know because I listen to a lot of ethnobotanists and, and, and people who've been at it for a long time that a lot of people say when they land at that elevation, the first thing they have to do is go and get some coca tea to relieve Mm -hmm. the headache that they have from the elevation. So, I mean, ultimately maybe people have been microdosing coca to help with that elevation sickness that comes with living in that high altitude for so many years. So yeah, that's how I've, I've seen it used by a lot of people is, is Americans that go down there or people that aren't used to that elevation, um, need the aid of coca and small doses to help with the elevation sickness. 
Yeah. And it's brilliant. They put it in everything. There's coca candy. I was fond of that. I ended up buying some uh, coca leaves dipped in chocolate. And those were my wild favorite. And I couldn't find those again. And they've got the tea and they've got them in quinoa bars. And they're just like shoving coca down your throat all the time. (laughs) And and that's not us saying that everyone should just take coca all the time. And again, coca is very different than cocaine. But yeah, it's a part it's a part of society. And that is where America needs to get one day is where we finally accept fungi, plants, Mm. vitamins, herbs as real medicine, right? Mm -hmm. It's a complete sham that these aren't accepted as real medicine and that our medical doctors can't give you the option of a functional mushroom as opposed to a antidepressant, you know? And you go down to these Andean societies, it's a part of their culture. The sacred Mm -hmm. Lama brought it to them as a gift to, you know, ease anxiety, ease depression, help with fatigue. So um, we could really learn a lot from from these animals and how they respect the planet and, and are really truly a part of it. We really could, absolutely. And we could even learn from you. Uh, you're launching a program upcoming in November. Uh, tell me what you're launching. Yeah, thanks for that. I'm launching the microdosing masterclass with psychedelics today. Uh, it launches November 15th. I have, I think I have more than 10 guest teachers, including mm-hmm. um, Dr. Jim Fadiman, who's kind of the father of the modern microdosing phenomenon that's going on today. He, uh, he teaches for a full hour in his own words on, you know, his history in microdosing as well as best practices. Um, I'm teaching about all the stuff I shared with you today, the animal use, the indigenous use. Not only do I... Um, tell you all of this. I have the footnotes. I have the actual mm. quotes. I share with you the authors. I show with you where you can find everything. Uh, you get a live Q&A with Dr. Fadiman after the class launches on November 15th. We've got Laura Dawn coming on. She talks about microdosing ayahuasca, which has contraindications. Mm. So people really need to check out that, that episode. And again, microdosing ayahuasca is not the ayahuasca brew. It's the Bonasterius capi vine. So that's important to note. We've got Elizabeth Bast. She's coming on to talk about microdosing iboga, which seems to have the most contraindications uh, out of any of these plants or, or fungi that are microdosed. And uh, we talk about, you know, the negatives. There are negatives. People dose wrong. People have heightened anxiety. Uh, we talk about the most current studies. We talk about the early LSD studies they did in the 1950s. We talk about Albert Hoffman microdosing. You know, most people don't know that he was said to microdose for the last decade or two of his life. He lived Mm -hmm. to 102. He ended up saying uh, to multiple people that he felt like microdosing was the most under-researched area of psychedelics and that he Mm -hmm. presented to Sandoz that he felt like small doses could have been an antidepressant or even a replacement for Ritalin. Nowadays, I'm seeing people replace Adderall with microdosing and with mushrooms, and, and that's amazing to see as well. So we learn about contraindications. We learn about what you can't take. We learn about best practices. And then what I think is different than most courses is we learn about the history. You know, a lot of people aren't talking about um, how, you know, indigenous cultures have used microdosing and macrodosing for thousands of years. So we dive in really deep. Uh, we've got early bird tickets right now. Till November 15th for $99 and then it's going to go up to $199. But there's, I think, more than seven hours on microdosing information. We've got talks on microdosing for veterans, 
microdosing in minerals. There's a lot of thing that's, things that aren't talked about in psychedelics, which is there is mineral depletion when it comes to microdosing over time or taking large doses over time. So we have mm. some amazing talks around that. And uh, it's just really super, super comprehensive. Again, more than seven hours on all the little different niches and best practices of microdosing. That sounds fantastic. You'll probably see me there. Awesome. Always Love to, to see you there. Yeah. Always looking to expand, expand the knowledge. And, you know, these are a lot of this is information that's really only just becoming available on a grand scale without having to spend so, just as much time digging through the internet to find it yourself, probably four times as much time. Just learn. Yeah. From the and, experts. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I'm excited about the online class, which is great, but I'm also excited. We're doing a weekend retreat at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur. This is January 13th to January 15th, 2023, Dr. Fadim and myself are co-leading a weekend uh, at Esalen, and we are essentially uh, helping to bring psychedelics back to the Esalen Institute, which was an early place where Tim Leary and Stan, Stan Groff and, and Dr. Fadiman were, mm -hmm. uh, you know, talking about this movement and, and even experimenting. What's fascinating about bringing Dr. Fadiman back to Esalen after all these years is he was the first person ever to talk at Esalen back in the day. He gave the first talk and it was on psychedelics. And now we're bringing him back in his 80s to present for a full weekend on microdosing, which is just mm. super full circle and super beautiful. But no, this is, this is really amazing because, you know, Dr. fadiman has been in the psychedelic game for a long time. In the 60s, he did an amazing research study on large dose LSD and creative problem solving and found that I think it was 40 out of 44 or 44 out of 48 professionals were able to solve their problems after one to three large doses of LSD. So he's a legend in the space and uh, he hasn't presented in public in four years since COVID. So we're really excited to bring him back to Esalen and to get to meet with people. And I'm excited too, to hear from the community because there's so many people out there like you and other people who are helping people and learning. And that's what microdosing is. It's founded on citizen science, which is people trying it themselves and then reporting back what works and what doesn't work. And essentially that's what Dr. Fadiman's done the last 10, 12 years is collect people's individual reports. And uh, that's how we found out it's helped people with shingles, Lyme's disease, mm -hmm. all kinds of different things. So yeah, we're really yeah. excited to be in person and, and bring psychedelics back to the Esalen Institute. Oh, I love that. What a beautiful journey and a wonderful testament to how everything always comes full circle. And um, yeah, it's interesting you say that you, they, how people have discovered it's been helpful for other things. And um, I had a friend I turned on to it for his son who has epilepsy and it took him about a year of continuing to research it. But I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm hearing from other people that this has been really helpful for their epilepsy. And his son had grand mal seizures several times a year. And um, he finally got him on a microdosing protocol. And he's just like, I can't wait to share the results. You know, he took their super profound it's it's interesting and i would probably guess he's using a small dose since mm -hmm. it's a, a younger individual and the interesting thing is nobody bats an eye at a doctor prescribing adderall to a child um you know and and there are different options out there for for things and i'm so happy to hear that that's helping it's it's not surprising at all the, the amount of people right. that are replacing adderall with a natural mushroom um, it's remarkable. Yeah. 
And it's interesting. I had never, I recently got off Adderall almost a year ago now and um, was excited to see what that would do to my life. Uh, you know, I was having problems sleeping always. And now I don't really have problems sleeping anymore. And I was shocked that by getting off of it, not much changed. Like my energy levels weren't crazy different. Um, I just, now I take more naps and that's okay. Took a nap right before our interview. It's perfect. And um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to helping other people get off Adderall as well, because boy, what that does every day to your brain is just um, very harmful. And there's other alternatives and especially lighting it up with the mushrooms and the mycelium. It's just profound. Yeah, and I think it'd be really great if we had a medical system where, like, you know, the doctor was able to work with maybe a therapist that was diving into the the roots of what's going on inside the person that might mm -hmm. be causing this illness or this depression. Because it's not that microdosing is curing depression. Absolutely not. Microdosing is not a magic pill. It's, it's not going to cure your depression. But for some people who've been so depressed and so down for so long, it stimulates them. It gives them hope again. It gives them that hope that they haven't had in years. And that's what it did for me. And I tried antidepressants years ago and it didn't work for me. And there has to be people that they work for. So I'm not trying to badmouth them, but I'm trying to say, we have to have an option. We have to have an option where somebody's not going to go to jail if they want to microdose instead of taking Adderall or Xanax to go to sleep or something like that. And it's, you know, there's continuous studies that show that like a 10 minute walk or a 30 minute walk reduces exercise, but people don't like to take a walk. You know, mm. they'd rather just go to the doctor and get a pill and, and hope that that treats it. So I think, you know, we have to become more proactive as a society. We have to get back to our hunter gatherer days of being able to walk around the block or up a few flights of stairs without losing our breath. And, get back into being fit humans, turn off the artificial lights, get outside, turn off the programming on TV. There's a reason TV is called programming, right? Mm, absolutely. God, 100%. And having, you know, just been gone for a month, it's um, fantastic how great life has been without television, how great life was not even having a cell phone for an entire week. Um, I mean, there was like no stress around it whatsoever. It was just like, ah, oh, yeah, it's gone. Like my assistant's off this week. I'm just, everyone's, everyone knows I'm gone. And then if they don't, like I'm not curing cancer, it'll all be fine. And, and it was, and just connected. And I, and I think, and that's part of what's so healing about retreats like you did is that it's the first time in years people put their cell phone down. And it's the first time like they can't get service or they can't yeah. like hook up the Wi-Fi, you know, and it's like, I am not perfect. I am flawed. I'm in a continuous process of becoming a better human being. And this cell phone sucks me in more than anything on the planet. They have made the cell phone so addictive. It's essentially television programming in your hand. And so I, too, struggle with the fact that wherever I take my cell phone, somebody can email me. Somebody can ask me a question about work. And so, so much about that retreat setting is putting that phone down. You know, when I was a kid, we didn't grow up with phones. We were outside till the streetlights were on and, and then we came inside. And I think, you know, with kids today, I have a 13 year old, he's sucked into that phone and, you know, we're not meant to see thousands and tens of thousands of things every day on Instagram or 
that many fit men or that many beautiful women or that many sexualized ads, you know, we're not meant to see this. So our society is being overwhelmed by these phones and these ads and we're just miserable because we, our life isn't as good as Instagram. And it's like, if you just take this thing and you put it down and you get outside and you connect with nature, which we are a part of, we're not depressed. We're not as depressed anymore. We get back to what's real. Right. It's, it's really a simple formula when you put it like that. And it is really actually simple. just that simple. It fucking works. And, um, yeah. Well, so where can my audience keep up with you? Where do you like to hang out online? Since we're talking about social media, uh, you and I connected on Instagram. What is your Instagram handle? Yeah, you can check me out at Flow State Micro. That's all one word, uh, just like it sounds, Flow State Micro. And then we're also at flowstatemicro.com uh, on the web. And uh, that's about all I mess with. Don't mess with Twitter or, or anything else. And, and what I'd like to remind anyone out there that's starting a business or any young person that's getting into social media is you don't have to post every day. And you don't have to post six times a day and you don't have to beat the algorithm because you're never going to beat the algorithm. <laughs> and so what I will say is I stopped posting on Instagram a lot. Mm. I might post every couple of weeks when I have an announcement like the class at Esalen or a reminder that my class is coming out, but I've had to put social media down. It's not good for you. And uh, the more I look at it, the more I think I'm missing out, the more I think that, uh, it just, it's depression in a phone. Mm -hmm. So that's where they can find me. There's a lot of great free information there. Check me out. Um, but yeah, I stopped playing the game of trying to keep up with the algorithm and I lost a lot of people and there's just the way it is, but that's my advice to people out there is don't feel like you need to post every day or, or you need to be a presence because a lot of these people you think you're competing with have a team. They have five people editing videos and scheduling a month in advance and you're going to run yourself ragged if you think you can keep up with some people like that. So take it easy, get off Instagram, and get your ass outside. Amen. I couldn't agree more. That's kind of my social media policy as well. And I have actually taken on a virtual assistant who handles, for instance, like podcast, social media and all that. But for me, I'm like, I'm only posting as long as it's fun. And when it's not fun anymore and I don't feel like I'm making an impact, like I'm just not going to post. And that's just how it is. And that's okay because it's my social media, like no one's paying. I don't even really want brand sponsorships and stuff because I don't want that much pressure. It's a fascinating way for the younger generation to go into business for themselves and potentially make money and get creative. But mm -hmm. I think it's also the biggest reason that they all suffer from depression. You know, we didn't have mm -hmm. access from that back in the day. I was still depressed. You know, you still deal with depression in middle school and high school and puberty and, and all that. But yeah, kids today, I still feel like a child and it's like, I'll find myself feeling sad. And then I'm like, Adam, you've been on Instagram for 20 minutes. Put your, <laughs> put your phone down. So for a lot yeah. of people out there that are struggling and they're like, will microdosing help with my depression? It could, but so would getting off Instagram seven hours a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that along with, um, I have a lot of clients too come to me who confess to drinking a lot of energy drinks or something. And I'm like, Oh, well, maybe we should get you off the caffeine as well. Like, let's just try that. <laughs> like, that's going to make your heart race. That's going to give you anxiety for sure. Like, what else are you doing? Are you meditating? No. Okay. Well, let's, let's try that too. <laughs> and the big one for me was sugar. It's like, I found mm. when I got depressed, 
I found when I got depressed, it was like ice cold Coca-Cola, smoke some weed, some gummy bears. Let's just fucking eat a pint of Haagen-Dazs Dolce de Leche because I'm fucking depressed or whatever. And it's like, I think the two biggest drugs that are a problem in America in this world are alcohol and sugar. Mm -hmm. And it's like the combination of people just sugars and everything, right? They don't realize it. I think, I think sugar's linked to depression. I know sugar's linked to my depression. I know a lot of people out there eat when they're depressed. Um, Mm -hmm. But I saw a direct link with taking sugar out of my life and being a happier individual. So when Mm -hmm. I'm coaching a person with microdosing, there are so many elements of things that we add to their life. We take alcohol out of their life. You know, we add exercise to their life. We add more water. We look at their diet. You know, a lot of people join a gym for the first time. So it's not a magic pill. You have to do the work. You know, you have to work really hard. Some days are really, really hard. They're not always rainbows and butterflies, but it's about setting yourself up with these other things. Like do yoga three times a week, have some discipline in your life. And that's what mushrooms brought in my life that cannabis didn't. Mushrooms brought discipline in my life. They showed me like how important discipline is, how important it is to get up and make your bed every day, how important it is to get up. And even though you don't want to work out, go to the gym because who wants to work out? I don't want to work out. I hate running. (laughs) I hate taking a shower. I hate eating food. Right. But these are all things we, we have to do. So yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I I mean, it's weird. (laughs) There's probably something connected to it. I love eating. (laughs) Yeah. I love eating. I, I have a philosophy behind it. I, um, I feel like taste is the sense we use the least. And so when you eat, that's like the time you get to use taste. And so it's like, I love good tasting food. I'm, I've just been getting off ice cream for the last year. So I'm, man, could I slay a pint of ice cream in one sitting several times a week. And now I'm to the point where I'm like, okay, how about just like not processed sugar? So I'm doing like sliced fruit with peanut butter on top, with all like the fixins on top, um, but they're natural fixins. So it's like, you know, pepitas and nuts and uh, peanut butter and shredded coconut and cacao. And cacao has been actually a wonderful replacement for what I think I want from sugar and um, getting that like stimulation and satisfaction and mood enhancement from cacao. Uh, highly recommend. Yeah, that's amazing. Interested. Food. Big fan. <laughs> and the last thing I'll say about food is, uh, you know, as a single dad for the last couple of years, I used to eat out a lot. And the other thing with getting sugar out of my life that changed my life was not eating out and getting all the seed oils that foods are cooked Mm. in and then preparing my own food and putting my energy into the food. And it's just been so life-changing and cooking for my kids and like, that's life-changing. And I'll never forget, Mm. I heard a story where this Indian teacher guru started having visions of like wars and boats sinking and stuff like that. And then he asked this cook one day, uh, what are you doing while you're cooking my food? And he said, oh, I've been reading the newspaper the last couple of days while I cook your food. (laughs) So it's like people don't realize that there's potentially even energy coming from the person preparing your food. And if somebody's in a restaurant and they fucking hate their job, I don't know that good energy is, is coming into your food. So when I stopped eating out and started preparing my own food and putting my own energy into it, that was also life-changing. So I think, you know, 
depression and happiness is tied to our diet, our, our movement, our mental health, you know, so many different things. Absolutely. Oh, well, this has just been a lovely conversation with you about so many of my favorite things. Thank you so much for joining me. And um, I look forward to sharing, sharing you on the platform with my listeners and yeah, appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the platform and thanks for being so brave and putting yourself out there in a space that, uh, you know, is really ancient, but a lot of people believe is new. And it's about us, you know, reminding people that the ancestors have done the research. You know, we've, we've been doing this for at least 10,000 years. And, uh, so thanks for having me. It was a pleasure and, and I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and review this podcast wherever you're listening. I'm so grateful to have you on this journey with me. Until next time.